every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Tim Alders. Welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders here on the America Out Loud Network. You know, programs like this exist because people like you exist. People who understand that someone has to hold the line on truth and especially on the preservation of freedom. And it ain't getting easier, is it? Well, I'm grateful that uh, that you're standing up and grateful that you're doing your part to stay informed. I'm going to do my part to uh, hopefully share some information with you that will help to uh, strengthen you uh, both, uh, you know, emotionally, both psychologically and intellectually. And I thought we could start by talking about one of the big battlegrounds that we see right now, which is between parents and education and government officials. Although I repeat myself on that last two, education officials more often tend to be government officials. Because we have allowed education to become the purview of government. So when it comes to solving problems like this, there are a couple things that happen fairly predictably. Number one, both sides get very, very dug in, as we've recently witnessed with angry parents at school board meetings and school board, uh, well, the president of the school board uh, association in, in the U.S., you know, actually writing to the federal government and saying, hey, is there any way we can do something about this domestic terrorism taking place at our school board meetings? So appealing to the state for help to solve education issues, that's one of the predictable things. The other predictable thing is people tend to miss the most obvious solution that's in front of their faces. And Jacob Hornberger from the Foundation for Economic, I'm sorry, the Foundation Let's try this one more time. The Future of Foundation, Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. Sorry, there's a lot of foundations that start with the letter F. I'm just trying to keep them all straight in my head. Jacob Hornberger zeroes in on the real issue which has created the current statist war over public school books. And the solution that's staring us in the face that unfortunately very few people will see is we need to separate school and state. He's got a great illustration of why that is so. He says, statists all across the country are going to war with each other over which books will be permitted to be placed in public, in other words, government school libraries. And their mindsets are so mired in statism that they cannot see there is no possible way to resolve their war in a way that will make everyone happy. Now, what they fail to realize is that their basic paradigm for education, that the state should be educating children, is the real problem. See, as long as the state is in charge of education, there's always going to be a fierce political battle over which textbooks will be used, which books should be in the library, what should be taught in the classroom. And moreover, he reminds us, the majority will rule. Now, 
It might be a majority of school board members at the local level making decisions. It could be a majority in the state legislature, even a majority at the state board of education. All of these people, of course, are either elected or appointed through the political process. So whichever side is in the majority, well, they're going to be happy that their book selections have prevailed, and whoever is in the minority will be unhappy and will cry censorship. The political battles will continue with each side fighting hard to get their people elected or appointed to public office. Now, if you're with me so far, okay, stick with me for just a little bit longer, because now he's Jacob Hornberg is going to illustrate why it's so essential that we separate school and state. He starts by pointing us toward religious liberty and says, thank goodness for the First and Fourteenth Amendments. These two amendments prohibit the states from involving themselves in religious affairs. And then he says, imagine if we didn't have those two express prohibitions. We would be experiencing the same types of fierce political wars in religion that we're experiencing in education. There would be battles over what religious books to promote or to display in churches. There would also be fights over which version of the Bible to use. People would be battling over which religious doctrines to adopt. There would be forever wars over the format for Sunday services. There would be compulsory church attendance laws for children, as well as church buses to transport them to church. There would undoubtedly be battles over whether to adopt a system of church vouchers or charter churches. There would be locally elected religious boards, similar to school boards. There would be a state board of religion, there would be fiercely fought political battles with candidates' religious religions rather being an important factor in the electoral campaigns. But he points out that none of those religious battles exist for one reason. The states are prohibited from involving themselves in religion. Instead, there's a multiplicity of churches and religions from which people can choose. Can choose rather. So, if they don't like what's happening or is being taught in one church or religion... They can simply move to another one. And that's how people are not able to impose their religious views on others through majority vote. So that that brings us to the solution for this current battle between what's being taught to our children and, and the people who want to do it. The people who want to say, parents, you have no right to say what your children are going to be taught. You want to see that battle go away, or at least the fangs taken out of it? Separate school and state. Jacob Hornberger says that is the only permanent solution to the book controversy in public schools. Rather than engage in nasty political wars over which books to include in the school library, over which doctrines are going to be taught in the classroom, or which textbooks are going to be used, just separate school and state, just as our ancestors separated church and state. With a free market educational system, it would be just like it is with religion people would be free to select the school or educational vehicle of their choice. And if they don't like how a school is operating or what it's teaching or what books it's using, they're free to simply move to a different school, one that better reflects their values. So Americans have two choices. According to Jacob Hornberger, number one, maintain the statist status quo and engage in endless political battles in education, or number two, separate school and state and bring peace harmony, and education to society. By the way, there's a great book out there that he recommends. It's by Sheldon Richman, 
who writes for the foundation, I'm sorry, the Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org. The book is called Separating School and State, How to Liberate America's Families. I think that's a pretty good take. I think it's a pretty enlightened take, actually, on the whole, you know, battleground right now between parents and public education, government education. I get it. Not everybody's in a position, well, I can't educate my kids. I count on that school to babysit them. Whoops, sorry. But that is true for a lot of people. That really is. You know, government schooling is kind of like a child care system. But to give people that choice, to take the element of coercion out by eliminating the state from the equation, It doesn't matter what the school across the street teaches if you're not forced to send your your child there, right? They can teach whatever crazy stuff they want to. And in a free market, you would be free to seek out a school that teaches the kind of values or the kind of uh, emphasis on education that you would want your child exposed to. The trouble is, and this is true for the left and right alike, people get in the habit of using the state to force a solution because... They think a one-size-fits-all approach is going to be good enough. Well, one-size-fits-all approaches seldom have a good outcome for everybody. Somebody's always left on the margins. But when you involve the state, you invite a man with a gun to sit down to the table. That's as simple as it is, because the state represents organized violence, and that's how it does what it does. We will make this a matter of public policy. We will make this a matter of legislation. And it will be enforced, and it's the force in enforced that is the key word that most people forget about. So, there's something to think about. Moving on. I've been very curious as I've watched, uh, you know, all the back and forth over uh, how to approach uh, COVID, how to treat COVID. Of course, the, the push is on right now. Everybody has to get vaccinated. I don't just mean everybody who is concerned about COVID should be vaccinated. I mean, there are people in government who are saying everyone Not just in America, worldwide, everyone has to take the shot. So much so that they have uh, finagled ways to get businesses to act as the enforcers. We'll talk more about that in a few moments, about, you know, what it's like to choose between keeping your job and being fired because you didn't get the jab. But one of the most curious aspects of the battle we see playing out here over a person's uh, right to, to deal with COVID in the way that they deem best, which is with their doctor, has been the fight of the medical establishment against treatments like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Got a great article here from Dr. Harold Pease. He, is, he holds a PhD in constitutional law, and he reports that Nebraska is leading out in protecting the medical freedom of doctors and patients to utilize ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine for for their patients this is in nevada in nebraska rather and he starts with a photograph of a headline at the beginning of his story this is dated june 17th 2021 the headline says ivermectin could have saved millions of lives but doctors were told not to use it now this is significant because you have some major countries india and japan among them who in the recent months have opened up the pathway where people can have easy access to a very affordable drug, ivermectin, and use that to treat emerging cases of COVID. What has happened in these countries, right? 
People are dying like flies, right? They're using veterinary medicine. Those rubes? No, actually uh, quite the opposite here. Instead of more people getting sick and dying because they haven't taken the, the vaccine, India and Japan have seen the cases of COVID drop precipitously through the use of a an inexpensive, I was going to say cheap, but I don't want to make it sound like I'm bagging on ivermectin, through an inexpensive, proven drug that's been around for a long, long time. Dr. Harold P. says, finally a breakthrough in the war against ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine in the treatment of COVID-19, which according to proponents of these drugs, could have saved hundreds of thousands of American lives had they not been politicized by the FDA, CDC, World Health Organization, National Institutes of Health, American Medical Association, um, the American uh, Psychiatric Association, and ASHP. I don't know what that one stands for, but there's all those letters out there for you. They strongly opposed the ordering, prescribing, or dispensing of these drugs to prevent or treat COVID, despite their enormous success by physicians all over America and throughout the world. And, of course, the largely controlled press, like robots, chimed in against. Well, despite the weaponization of these drugs, Nebraska supports doctors' freedom to prescribe them with informed consent of the patient. At the request of Danette Smith, CEO of the Nebraska Department of Health and Human Services, Nebraska Attorney General Doug Peterson issued a legal opinion after a thorough review of the clinical studies of the two drugs and after, of before and after covid And he concluded that the preponderance of scientific evidence favored their use in treating COVID for those who wish to use them. Now, in this review, Peterson cited numerous studies showing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine reduced mortality by up to 75% or more when used as a preventative or prophylaxis for COVID. How about that? suggesting hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved had the drugs been widely used in America. Now, both drugs have been successfully used long-term. Hydroxychloroquine was discovered in 1949. Ivermectin discovered in 1975. 3.7 billion doses administered since the 1980s, safely, and each for multiple afflictions and off-label usage. Now, can we compare that to the vaccine? How long has it been around? How, what kind of a track record has it shown in terms of, you know, its long-term effects? We don't know. Because there is no long-term just yet. It's been around just barely a year. Robert F. Kennedy, Jr., chairman of the Children's Health Defense, spoke of Nebraska's bold attorney general's effort to reestablish medical freedom in his state saying every citizen should be grateful for Doug Peterson's thoughtful and courageous counteroffensive against the efforts of Big Pharma, its captive federal regulators, and its media and social media allies to silence doctors and deny Americans life-saving treatments. Mary Holland, Children's Health Defense president, identified the best, best rather, the effect of the AG's decision, which is to let doctors get back to being doctors without being second-guessed by government, pharmacists, and others interfering in the crucial doctor-patient relationship. Neither government nor Big Pharma should tell doctors or patients what they can or cannot do regarding their health. Now, Peterson's report summarized findings on these two drugs. Respecting hydroxychloroquine, a study in 2004, revealed chloroquine to be an effective inhibitor of the replication of the severe respiratory, I'm sorry, severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus, or SARS-CoV in vitro, 
and should be considered for immediate use in the prevention and treatment of SARS-CoV infections. That's the virus causing the disease COVID-19. A study the following year showed it had strong antiviral effects on SARS-CoV infection and was effective in preventing the spread of SARS-CoV in cell cultures. More studies revealed that hydroxychloroquine significantly reduces the risk of hospitalization and death when administered to particularly high-risk outpatients as part of an early COVID-19 treatment. Ivermectin, too, proved especially good treating antiviral activity against several RNA viruses by blocking the nuclear trafficking of viral proteins. COVID is a virus. In the SARS epidemic of 2003, ivermectin demonstrated an ability to inhibit SARS-CoV-2 replication. Like Like COVID, a respiratory infection, leading to lower infection rates and countries using ivermectin with routine mass drug administration of prophylactic have a significantly lower incidence of COVID-19. Now, Attorney General Peterson found peer-reviewed COVID studies treating patients that, treating patients with iver, ivermectin reported positive outcomes. And these included things like shorter time to resolution of disease manifestations that were attributed to COVID-19, greater reduction in inflammatory marker levels, shorter time to viral clearance, and lower mortality rates in patients who received ivermectin than in patients who received comparator drugs or placebo. The drug led to improvement of COVID outcomes when used in early treatment or as a prophylaxis. He also noted that the few negative studies on the use of ivermectin as a COVID treatment were not peer-reviewed and excluded most available evidence and cherry-picked data within studies, misreported data, made unsupported assertions of adverse reactions to ivermectin, and had conclusions that did not follow from the evidence. In the case of the hostile treatment of hydroxychloroquine published in The Lancet, the statistics were flawed and the authors refused to provide analyzed data. Even its editor, Dr. Richard Horton, admitted later that after publication that the paper was a fabrication, it was a monumental fraud, and in his words, a shocking example of research misconduct in the middle of a global health emergency. So why the opposition by Big Pharma to two drugs that already cure COVID? I mean, you probably already know the answer, right? Money. Even without ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, 99% will survive COVID. Vaccines would not be necessary. They don't work anyway. Else, why would you need boosters every three months? Look at all the industry profits already made, and the truth is, COVID is a trillion-dollar industry. And Dr. Harold Pease asks, are we smart enough to see the obvious? Probably the best evidence for ivermectin as an effective cure for COVID is, however, that Merck, the patent holder of ivermectin, who's not promoting it as a COVID cure. Huh. Ivermectin, a cheap 46-year-old drug, has long wore out its profit potential. They can't make as much money on it. So why not just create a new drug, largely ivermectin, call it molnuprevir, up the price 100 times plus and market it as a just-discovered cure for COVID. Apparently, the U.S. government has agreed to pay Merck about $1.2 billion for 1.7 million courses of its experimental COVID-19 treatment if it's proven to work in an ongoing large trial and authorized by U.S. regulators. Molnupiravir 
aims to stop COVID from progr- progressing when given early in the course of di- the disease. Well, just like ivermectin does right now. I know you got to be just a little bit jaded to to look at this and think, could it really come down to you know the the pharmaceutical companies that make these you know drugs and treatments that uh, that deal with COVID? Could they really be just in it for the money? I know it's hard. It's hard to say. I'm sure there are good employees and there are good researchers and scientists that uh, that are there for the right reasons. But are they the ones calling the shots? Not to say the the matter of public health officials who step in and say, you know, we we really shouldn't. We discourage physicians from recommending or prescribing ivermectin. I mean, I just I recently heard a telephone call between a woman who was on the phone with a doctor at her mother's hospital. Her mother was hospitalized with COVID and apparently in a bad way. I think they may have already had her on the ventilator and it was it was not looking good. And here this uh, this doctor was telling this woman, look, our policy is you cannot, we cannot have any patients, visit, visitors cannot be allowed to, to visit with any of the patients. That is just our protocol for dealing with, you know, COVID. And the woman who was on the phone, and I believe she was a nurse, is pleading with this doctor, please, we have a prescription for her. This is from a physician. It's for ivermectin. I just want to come and administer it to her. And the doctor was telling her, no way. Nope, she can't have visitors. She's being isolated because of COVID. And then the tone switches because he says, by the way, I would really like to know the name of the doctor that prescribed that ivermectin because I'd like to report him to the board. See, I have to pause for just a minute just to get my mind around that. A woman is dying. The doctor is saying, no, 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 you can't bring her this treatment, even though it's been around for 45 years. It's not something that uh, you can bring, you know, to her. But on top of that, the doctor who prescribed ivermectin to her. Yeah, I'm thinking maybe I want to report him to the medical board. Why would he do that? I can only presume it's because there's some kind of sanctions, perhaps stripping of his medical licensure. Somebody feels the need to cancel this doctor. So the woman asks the doctor again. She's like, please, just let me, let me come and administer it to her. Is there not a doctor in the hospital who could administer it? And the doctor comes out and says, look, it is our policy not to do so. Besides, it could cause harm. We don't know what harm it could cause. It could, it could cause her to die. And the woman says, you just told me that she's dying. So how is this going to be any worse? And of course, he had no answer other than it's forbidden. It's our policy. It's our protocol. We don't, uh, we don't allow these things. See, somewhere in that mess is a little too much bureaucratic or governmental interference combining with medicine. And again, I'm going to sound like I'm painting with a broad brush here. I feel bad for, for anybody who feels smeared by what I'm about to say, but my trust in the medical establishment has never been lower. I could be having radiating chest pains and difficulty breathing, a cold, clammy appearance and nausea, and I'd still have to think twice about whether or not I want to go to the hospital. Because I know once I step through those hospital doors, they're going to claim that their policies and their protocols take precedent over any concern and any rights that I may think I have. 
well, Brian, what are you going to do? Cut off your nose to spite your face? You're just going to die of a heart attack because you're, you know, afraid of medical tyranny? I guess if I can just be blunt, yeah, I would rather die on my own terms than become essentially a prisoner, a virtual prisoner of the medical establishment. It wasn't always this way. And the biggest problem, as I understand it, is medicine and government have become far too closely intertwined. It's hopelessly created this this incredibly big bureaucracy where costs are impossibly huge, where there's so much paperwork and things to jump through, and now where effective treatments like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine are ruled as being not available to people because, well, you know, somebody hasn't provided their okay, meaning somebody in authority hasn't agreed to it. Since when is it their business in the first place? Shouldn't this be between the patient and their doctor? I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. Hail, my fellow Americans. How did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, You were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell, founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level. Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L. And use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. While the cancel culture is determined to destroy our history, bringing violence and terror to city streets, America Out Loud will enhance its own message of love and honor for the American traditions and constitutional values that have always been the backbone of what America means. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all.
Hey, once again, welcome back. This is the Disciples of Liberty Show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Tim Alders, and this is the America Out Loud Network. I think one of the biggest concerns that I have had for many years is whether people still have the capacity to recognize truth. And I'm, you know, I know on an individual level, I'm guessing the fact that you would listen to a program like this means you're probably willing to dig a little bit deeper than most when it comes to truth. But the masses generally seem to be more and more out of touch. And and I don't know a nice way to say this, so I'm just going to be really blunt. Our legacy media is propaganda. Most of what they report has to do with telling us, here's the narrative, here is what you are supposed to think, as opposed to giving us facts and letting us decide for ourselves what it all means. Can you see why that might be a concern, especially at a time where politicians might be feeling especially opportunistic? Wanting to take advantage of fears and concerns, to garner a little more power, a little more control, a little more tax harvesting from the citizenry? Well, are you ready for some good news? I know I am. And here's the good news. Like so many other words, the term insurrection has become so adulterated that it's almost meaningless. And and the really good news about this is, according to J. Michael Waller, a growing number of Americans say they are becoming, they they are aware that the January 6th narrative pushed by the political class is grossly distorted. He had a couple of high points here from his commentary. Two polls show few Americans believe the January 6th riot was a coup or insurrection. And the numbers, believe it or not, are declining. Now keep in mind, there are still hundreds of people being held, some in solitary confinement, as political prisoners over their participation in what the political class calls an insurrection. Yet no one has been charged with insurrection. No one has been charged with domestic terrorism. It's mostly things like entering a public building without permission or uh, protesting without a permit, trespassing, maybe some minor vandalism charges. How do you conflate something like that with insurrection? I think most, most reasonable people would agree an insurrection would consist of something involving the kind of violence that would drag politicians out in the street and either hang them from the nearest light pole or shoot them because they want them out of the way so that they can take command. But that's not what happened, is it? Seems like a little bit of wordplay might be at at, at stake here. J. Michael Waller says, Americans never bought House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's insurrection narrative about the January 6th violence at the Capitol. And the majority believe the incident was not as serious as portrayed, at least according to a new pair of polls. More Americans identify the mayhem as either a riot or protests than as an insurrection, either armed or otherwise, according to polls published in June and in October. The Center for Security Policy commissioned the polls with TIPP in May and September. And what they did was they asked the same respondents for multiple answers to identify precise public perceptions about the riot that occurred during the January 6th protest. As the Congressional January 6th Committee began their hearings in late September, the percentage of Americans who agreed with the insurrection narrative had declined since spring. More Americans favored, or more Americans rather described, January 6th events as unlawful entry and vandalism rather than using Pelosi's chosen term of insurrection. 
So in June, they did a survey of 1,308 adults that showed only 13% identified with the insurrection term and 14% with the term armed insurrection. Those views decreased to 10 and 12% respectively by early October. Rejection of the insurrection narrative is strongest among Republicans, independents, and people of color. And I guess if there's an overall lesson from this, here's what it is. There is no majority view as to what Americans call the events of January 6th. Maybe this is why the media still pushes the violent insurrection narrative. And they're still in full cry. I noticed uh, uh, recently, uh, oh, what's his name? Youngkin won the uh, governor's race in Virginia over uh, McAuliffe. And the folks at MSNBC, among others, man, they were in full cry about how this is just proof that the Trump insurrectionists are back, you know, of swinging into power here. So this is like a scary buzzword. Maybe it's kind of a a left-wing cuss word that they're throwing out there to, you know, put a little fear in the minds of their viewers. And apparently it, it does seem to work for a lot of people. But it's dangerous language. Because when you start throwing around terms like insurrection, I mean, you're talking about a deadly threat. You're talking about the kind of thing that we need to send in the military and crush that insurrection. We're not talking about telling people to go home. We're talking about bayonetting them. We're talking about shooting them in large numbers until the insurrection is brought to an end. It's just as destructive to be using terms like domestic terrorism, which, again, there are many who are very good to use this term, uh, you know, to, to advance their own political agenda. And it's not just people on the political left. Cheney's daughter, uh, Liz Cheney, she's a Republican from Wyoming. But she's as hardcore statist as any of her leftist counterparts in, you know, playing the domestic terrorism and insurrection angle. I guess it just goes to show you the power mongering isn't limited to any one political party. And the people who are in power clearly are very scared because they're using very dangerous words. Domestic terrorism. Why is that such a dangerous thing? Well, let's think about this. What have we learned in the last 20 years since the war on terror was launched in earnest? First of all, we learned that uh, there is no neutral ground. George W. Bush was the one who told us you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. That's not much of a choice. I mean, that's that's the, the false dilemma fallacy, but there it is. Secondly, look at what the look at the power the US government claims when it comes to dealing with terrorists. You'll find this in the Patriot Act, you'll find it in uh, some of the sections of the National Defense Authorization Act, but it's very clear the US government claims legal authority to drone strike as into murder. Suspected terrorist anywhere in the world. And yeah, they've done it. President Obama ordered the murder of a, of a suspected cleric in Afghanistan. At least I think it was Afghanistan. But uh, took out the guy's 16-year-old American-born son along with him. Do you ever hear an apology for that kind of thing? Nope. Because governments don't apologize when they're dealing with terrorists. Was it ever proven in a court of law that the person they took out was actually a terrorist? No. Oh, so this is this is a kind of uh, I guess it's it's a judicial extrajudicial kind of killing. No due process. 
So when you hear leaders talking about your fellow American citizens, including some who got rowdy, most of whom were no longer being rowdy by the time they walked into the U.S. Capitol and could be seen on video actually being ushered in or waved in by police officers there manning the doors. When you hear them described as domestic terrorists, just keep in mind that under the law, there's no clear distinction between the domestic terrorist and the kind of terrorists that our presidents have been drone striking and the national security agencies have been drone striking for a couple of decades. I know that sounds scary, and if I'm just if I'm fanning the flames of fear, I apologize. That's that's not my intent. My my biggest purpose here is to point out words have meanings. And when people in the political class are using dangerous words that apparently remove any kind of meaningful check to their power to deal with those threats, you should be concerned. I mean, we've seen this since the elections last year. We've seen it since January 6th. It's very, very clear. The political class is scared. They know they're losing control. Uh, The people no longer fear them. The people hate them in many ways and rejoice in mocking them. Let's go, Brandon. They don't have respect. They're not viewed with awe by about half the country. And that means their grip on power is pretty tenuous. So I guess they're just uh, covering their bets and making sure that, well, in a pinch, we can invoke terrorism and send in the military or send in the drones or whatever we have to do to crush this opposition. Even though most of these people are not out there doing anything violent in any way, shape, or form. They just want to be left alone. But you're not being given the choice. So the good news is people are not buying the narrative. I hope that uh, I hope that's the signal of a of a promising trend. The fact that Virginia, at least in its gubernatorial race, went red in a big way, may also indicate a bit of a a turning point. I mean, there were pundits who were saying uh, earlier before the Virginia election that if this goes red, it could portend great danger in the 2022 midterms as well as the 2024 general election. Personally, I don't put a ton of stock into the uh, the political process or the political uh, game. So much of it is melodrama. But uh, also, I believe that no matter who the politician is, you know, good good for you, Glenn Youngkin. But uh, but people who are looking to Youngkin as a savior are likely going to be just as disappointed as people who put all of their faith in Trump. Yes, he's better. He was better than what we currently have. But the underlying problem still remains because it wasn't just one person and it doesn't change or hinge on just one person. Politics generally poisons everything it touches and turns it into a political football. So do what you can to, to move the process in the right direction, but don't give all of your time, effort or moral energy to it because your help is needed in other areas as well. In fact, I want to shift gears and and talk a little bit about this, um, how more and more people are having to choose between their livelihoods and their consciences when it comes to vaccine mandates. Joshua Mahorder recently was fired from his teaching position in uh, California's school system for refusing to get vaccinated. And this is what he says. He says, until recently, I was a California teacher working in two charter schools. 
One as a full-time teacher of government, economics, and sometimes U.S. history, and the other as a part-time independent study teacher who assists families with a program primarily based around homeschooling. I've taught for about five years and love teaching. Last week, I was fired from one school and put on unpaid administrative leave at the other because of my refusal either to take and demonstrate proof of the COVID-19 vaccine or test weekly. Now, he says, I even filed a religious exemption stating the following, but this was rejected. So his exemption said, quote, as a committed follower of Christ, I religiously and philosophically cannot submit to either a government vaccine mandate or weekly testing. Those who violate first principles holding the biblical purview of including the biblical purview of uh, civil government relative to God. And he cites the requisite scriptures, Romans 13, 1 through 7, Acts 5, 29, the Christian value of freedom of conscience since whatever is not from faith is sin, that's Romans 14.23, the fact that my body is owned and dedicated to the Lord, 1 Corinthians 6 and 20, and not the state, and my sacred duty to be faithful to oaths sworn. And he cites from Deuteronomy as well as Matthew here, including the oath to support the U.S. Constitution and the California State Constitution. Now there's a footnote there that says both a vaccine mandate and weekly testing are in violation of the provisions of the Constitution in the 1st, 4th, ninth, and 10th Amendments, especially the Ninth Amendment, which states, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. The Supreme Court has affirmed a constitutional right to privacy historically in Griswold v. Connecticut, 1965. Since I am bound by a solemn oath to support the Constitution, I can neither submit to nor support a vaccine mandate or weekly testing because to do so would violate conscience. So that's what it said on his exemption application, which again, he says, was rejected. Based on my refusal to back down on these principles, he says I was offered two options, the opportunity to resign or to be terminated. So in order to force the issue, I chose to maintain my position, refusing to resign. So I was terminated. My situation was sort of the mirror opposite of the old joke adage, you can't fire me, I quit. Instead, I basically said to my employers, I can't quit, you fire me. Now, not, not everyone is in the position to force the issue, but he says, I am. And I felt I had no choice. It would be incongruous with what I consistently teach my students to back down and comply in a matter of rights, liberty, and principles. A quote often misattributed to Thomas Jefferson, but nevertheless true, applies. And it's the quote that says, In matters of style, swim with the current. In matters of principle, stand like a rock. Now he says, I hope I would still have the character to stand by my principles, even if my situation were more dire. However, there are some concrete actions and disciplines which protect me now. Listen close to what he did that made it possible for him to lose his livelihood rather than his principles. First, he says, have an emergency fund that can cover three to six months of expenses. Second, he says, I have no debt. Third, my expenses are minimal. Fourth, I possess plenty of social capital, that is, positive social relationships with family, friends, and my community. Now, he says, I encourage every reader to follow these disciplines and practices as soon as possible. Because when the time comes to stand for principles, these are just a few things that can help you do so with confidence. 
In fact, he says, personally, over the next year, I will take this as an opportunity to become completely self-employed and to help other people find financial freedom because, as we know, it is inextricably connected with personal and political freedom. There is great freedom in the ability to say no and to walk away. All of the pressures that make situations like this difficult, and of all of them, financial pressure is usually the most challenging. Financial stability, financial freedom, and long-term wealth are simple, but they're not easy. It's been rightly said that finances are 20% knowledge and 80% behavior. A monthly budget is essential in this regard. Contrary to popular belief, a budget is not just a constraint, but rather taking full control of your money by knowing exactly how each dollar is being spent. As the saying goes, a budget is simply telling your money where to go versus wondering where it went. And this gives people a sense of ownership, control, and empowerment. A budget involves the regular discipline of saying no to ourselves so that if and when the time comes, we can say no when our workplaces attempt to implement policies and expect us to comply because of the financial pressure. In addition to this, in order to protect yourself, Dave Ramsey recommends building up a $1,000 emergency fund and paying off all debt minus real estate, and then building up savings that cover three to six months of expenses. So a little bit of discipline today can lead to freedom tomorrow and the ability to walk away even from a job that you love when your conscience demands it. I know it sounds easy, right? I mean, to, to say it is one thing, but to do it is something else. And despite all the help-wanted signs out there and the worker shortages everywhere, stepping out into the job market is fraught with some danger. After all, how many of those employers actually care about your human rights? And the truth of the matter is, there are a lot that are like, well, sorry, but we kind of have to go along with this or OSHA's going to fine us. So, yeah, if you want to work, you got to get the jab. You got to toe the line. So they become de facto enforcers for the state. I mean, I was slow to the game. It's only within the last year and a half that I find myself in the position where I am 100% self-employed. Why didn't I get there sooner? Well, if I can be really blunt, it's because uh, working for somebody else and collecting a regular paycheck was simply easier. Now, it may sound like, well, are you denigrating people who have a you know steady job and a steady paycheck? Not at all. But I would also remind you that having that steady job and that steady paycheck is contingent upon whoever it is that is employing you, whoever is is creating that job in the first place. You're at their mercy. So when the government tightens the screws on them, as it has with some of these COVID vaccination requirements, they don't have a lot of choice but to pass that risk on to you, meaning get the jab or hit the road. So the best possible position that you can be in, if you're not already there, is to be completely self-employed and have multiple sources of income. I also would add to it, you know, what uh, what the author here, Josh, Joshua Mahorder says, um, being debt-free, that's a huge part of it as well. Having, you know, a rainy day fund, self-reliance, both financially as well as temporally, Yeah, if you've got those things, you've got a fighting chance. 
But it's kind of scary to step out there and to to be fully self-employed. Let me tell you what I experienced. I feel pretty safe in sharing this with you because uh, I don't I don't think this is going to step on too many toes. But I was in a position where I was given an ultimatum. I was working with a particular uh, foundation and was given the choice. Look, you either work just on the projects we have for you or, you know, or you don't work for us because I was I was working with them as an independent contractor. Now, truth be told, um, that that foundation was was having some financial difficulties and the 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 prospect of will they have money, you know, to be there, you know, even a month or two or six months down the road was very much in question. So I had to have other projects as sort of a backup. Now, I was being paid well through this particular company, but I still wanted to to have these other projects to to make sure that I had something to fall back on if and when that money were to uh, to run out. And when I was given that ultimatum, I was given a choice. You either, you know, you either stop working for these other people or you can leave. And I chose to take the door. And it was hard. I won't say I was rolling in the bucks, but I was I was receiving a very comfortable check each month that uh, left me no doubt that I could meet my financial obligations and have a little bit to spare. And so I said, well, then I have no choice but to, to go my own way. And the thing that I noticed was, number one, uh, first of all, my pay dropped considerably. <laughs> that was That was to be expected. But something else happened that I hadn't expected, and that was I felt my leash come off. I hadn't even realized I was on a leash at that time. So, yeah, there was greater risk and there was greater uh, requirement for hustle. I'll tell you, I'm working harder now. I'm working longer hours now than I've ever worked before in my life. But I'm finding greater satisfaction in it and I have potential to go so much further and so much faster than I did when I was wearing that leash that I didn't even know was around my neck. So I offer that only as, as one small anecdotal example that it's, it's scary to work for yourself, but look at the position people are being put in and it makes more sense than ever. And if you can combine that with staying out of debt, I think you're going to find yourself way ahead in the end. All right, let's shift gears here. A lot of anger and hatred being encouraged towards the unvaxxed. That's pretty daunting, and it's pretty clear. It's right out in the open. It's socially acceptable. But we need to keep it in perspective. And I think the important part here is we need to make sure we're not mirroring mirroring that anger or hatred back at the people who are perpetuating it. found a great article here by Steve Apfel reminding us that the hatred that we are seeing toward the unvaxxed comes from a place of emotion rather than reason. And he gives the example of when COVID-braving Dennis Prager said he contracted it purposely in order to be taken care of by therapeutics. The public outcry was more life-threatening than the virus. People said, well, he must be made to pay for any treatment he gets. He should be denied a hospital bed. Another conservative talk show host spreads his disease. And every story speaks of a mini-plague, and every ending is a blameworthy death So Steve Hatfield says, is fear driving the paranoia? What's to hate in one who makes a choice and takes the consequences and is content to let others do so? And why is it doctors 
who seem more prone to arousal. The unvaccinated are despised with incomprehensible ardor. And he gives the example of Dr. Clive Shaketti. I hope I'm saying his name right. Dr. Clive Shaketti's brother died from or with COVID. Now, Dr. Shaketti certainly deserves condolences because losing a brother is a terrible loss. However, Dr. Shaketti decided to create a video lashing out at others. So he can't hide from critiques about his words. Grief is not a defense to error or irrationality. When the video starts, Shaketi's manner is sedate, his words deliberate, and his voice controlled. I have no political agenda or investments in any vaccine-making company, but I, as a physician, have an obligation to try to help people and save people's lives. Now, he spends a minute or two explaining why the vaccines are low-risk, although what he really does is reveal the unreasonably high risk the pill poses for young women, and then he reels off Israeli stats for the J&J vaccine, blood clots. Now, this raises a question. Did he ever consult the VAERS numbers for America? Because there you'll find 17,128 vaccine-related deaths, 2,631 miscarriages, 8,408 heart attacks, 10,304 myocarditis, 83,412 hospitalizations, etc. Yes, the stats come with a precaution. Causality is not causality is not proven. But speaking of causality, how many recorded COVID deaths were, in fact, not attributable to COVID, thereby exaggerating its lethality? For example, Santa Clara County in California has admitted it overstated its COVID deaths by 22%. Well, soon, Shaketi becomes vindictive. A beloved brother had not been vaccinated, and Shaketi's beside himself. His words, manner, and his voice would curdle milk. The doctor is bent on reprisal. For the passing of that reckless, precious brother who wouldn't get jabbed, the unvaxxed are going to bear the brunt. He says, if you're not getting vaccinated, you're like someone who drinks and drives. Perhaps you'll get away with it. Perhaps you won't kill yourself or others on the road. Perhaps you will. The vaccinated should have to sign a directive. No vaccination, no intubation, no medicine. 10,000 guilt-ridden and scapegoating hatreds could be eating up the grieving doctor. So spot the anomalies. First of all, I have no agenda. Well, the doctor actually gives two examples of absent agendas, a political agenda and a profit motive agenda. But he admits the obvious and often the clearest motive of all, which is a personal agenda. Visibly, and verbally, Shaketi is crusading. Two, a physician. He must have good knowledge of treatments and medications. From a global summit of physicians in Rome back in September of this year, one of the declarations reads as follows. Thousands of physicians are being prevented from providing treatment to their patients as a result of barriers put up by pharmacies, hospitals, and public health agencies rendering the vast majority of healthcare providers helpless to protect their patients in the face of COVID. Physicians are now advising their patients to simply go home, allowing the virus to replicate and return when their virus worsens, resulting in hundreds of thousands of unnecessary patient deaths due to failure to treat. Now, currently, large numbers of physicians are preventing others from giving patients potentially life-saving treatments. It's no longer possible to trust the medical establishment or to assume that it knows or is willing to do what's best. Out there, an intermedic war rages over whether or not to save human life. Three, Shaketi leaves us in the dark about the time frame leading to his brother's death. Is it possible he died suddenly? No time for treatment? Can it be? What period elapsed between the first symptoms and hospitalization? Once in the hospital, what period elapsed before the condition turned critical? <laughs> 
Now, there's more to this, but I'm going to kind of cut to the chase here because we're running up against the clock. Dr. Clive's message would seem to be get a criminal record or get vaxxed. He wants everyone to surrender the arm for puncturing, puncturing as a cow surrenders its flank to the hot iron of its owner's brand. Surrendering the body to a treatment of questionable benefit and one that moreover could be very harmful. Not a good idea. B, get vaxxed for your own good, but also for the greater good of society. Maybe that's the case he's trying to make. Or maybe he believes, C, the unvaxxed are just as likely to hurt people as a drunk driver. Well, actually, the average efficacy of Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J vaccines leaves people just as likely to contract COVID as they were before they got vaxxed. Or had he not noticed? Surely in that case, innocents will still be hurt by those who caved to the blackmail and got vaxxed. And that analogy of drunk driving is wrong on a different count. A drunk driver is definitely more likely to hurt people than had he not been drinking. And one final thought. Was a factor in not trying therapeutics before the brother became critical the fact that it was not on the government-approved list for treating COVID? Pleading, where is the science, is futile. The camp of the vaxxed doesn't want science what they want, is compliance. And if you're not compliant, you are complicit, a domestic terrorist, and undesirable. But the key to remember here is this is coming to you from a place of emotion rather than reason. Don't lose your cool. Don't lose your principles. Hold your ground and be steady. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Tim Alders. This is the Disciples of Liberty on the America Out Loud Network.